This is a podcast for Indelible, a documentary film in progress for the week of June 27th, 2016. These last few weeks have carried with them turmoil. Not only was there oppression related to the story behind Indelible, but the world released a myriad of nightmares and oppression in various forms, reminding us of the sad state of our communities. There's a sense of reeling from these events, a mass shooting in Orlando and emotional outcries for gun control accompanied by a seemingly uncritical willingness to give up legal protections, which may have repercussions in the future. And then to top it off, the UK voted to leave the European Union, which could be good because it sends a message to the exploitive banks who wanted the UK to remain in the Union, but some feel it will lead to another financial crisis before November. In general, the world appears to be tilting. As gun control wars rage in social and all forms of media, Carl Harps, former cellmate and close friend John Bosch, shared with me the history behind the current forms of our law enforcement. He seems to have a million pointers to a thousand different facts. His experience of oppression by law enforcement has sharpened his awareness. He's alert. He studies the history of his enemies. The same could be said of Carl Harp, though he had 40 fewer years to develop his philosophy or to log his experiences. John once wrote a poem in the early 1980s for the anarchist Black Dragon called Outlaws. After reading this, I began to look for examples of outlaws in American history, and I came across Butch Cassidy. He was the last outlaw during a diminishing period of freedom in American history in the late 19th century. Cassidy's large family had been homesteaders in Utah, but the authorities at the time decided their homestead was too large and should be reduced, which caused his father to seek hourly work, and it was not enough to support the family, and they suffered in poverty. Cassidy's response to this was to run to freedom rather than to follow his father into what he considered to be slavery. He drove his horse west, becoming a cowboy in Colorado. While there, he met up with a mentor who taught him to be disciplined in his riding and shooting, and he became an expert in these types of quote-unquote systems. And it was because of this training and discipline that Cassidy succeeded in his future career as a robber of banks and railroads. He was successful because he used his system of knowledge about horses and their limitations when planning his escape. 
and he also believed in what he was doing. He never killed a person in any of the robberies, and he often shared what he took with the poor ranchers and homesteaders, saving them from losing their homes or livelihoods. In return, they protected him. Cassidy became so successful and prolific that the railroads hired a special team from the Pinkerton Detective Agency to stop him. This agency used data tracking in an old analog form to locate Cassidy and his partners as they spent their money and moved from one location to another. They also relied on long-distance communication techniques through Western Union to share data and coordinate their findings. And it worked. And Cassidy saw the writing on the wall. It was the end of his career. He fled the country with two close friends living in South America for a time. Some say he died there, but his own sister said this was false. She said she met with him in 1924. He had moved to Washington State and was living in Spokane. He died in 1937, and his ashes were scattered in the Spokane River. When Cassidy was an outlaw, he never lost sight of the broader meaning of what he was doing. He only took money from the wealthy, and he often shared it with the poor. He never betrayed someone who helped him. It was the protection and loyalty of the ranchers and the poor homesteaders that enabled him to sustain his success for as long as he did. His success was also maintained by the land itself. It was a difficult and vast terrain around what was called the Outlaw Trail. This landscape offered him protection and shelter. During that time, there was oppression, yet one could ride out into freedom to escape, fighting the restraints and letting the oppressors know that they did not have free reign over those they hoped to restrain and profit from. An outlaw could win, as Butch Cassidy did, one-on-one. -on -one. There was no CIA, no FBI, no psychological operations to harm his family or friends. Yes, he could die, but he had a choice. And it was fair choice. It was a time where unfettered freedom existed. It was a time where the vastness of the American landscape assisted such freedom. But the Pinkerton Detective Agency moved in ways that are not dissimilar to our modern agencies, which are part of law enforcement or military support like the NSA. The agency compiled data on citizens and they connected the dots. And they worked for the wealthy, 
the owners of the railroads, and the bankers. Eventually, these clients felt the Pinkerton services were too costly, and they moved to form local police forces. It was through this act that our current version of law enforcement was created. It was law enforcement to protect the interests of the wealthy. Even today, law enforcement does not serve the poor by design. It has never been part of their founding principles and legacy. They carry guns. Some carry assault rifles, like those used in Orlando. And their goal and assignment is to protect the interests of the wealthy. We no longer have a place to escape oppression as Cassidy had so many years ago. When organized authorities or oppressors do the wrong thing, when they break the laws for their own gain, we cannot run to the West and take them on one to one. Metaphorically speaking, the quote unquote Pinkerton's efforts have expanded and completely enclose us within their system. We are constantly tracked and monitored and our data is stored for future use as Edward Snowden has shown us. We have no air to breathe that is free and so it is the free air we so desire. All anger is fear in disguise. The loss of freedom, a free movement, free thought bears down on us. Our voices are many, but we only chatter away repeating what we are told to say by those who oppress us, and we know this. Fear sets into one or two of us as we become viscerally aware of our restraints and soon anger surfaces. But to the quote-unquote Pinkertons, this is a useful scenario. Because if given an assault rifle and pointed in the right direction, like a gay bar in Orlando, a terrible act of violence can spread the disease of fear even further. More fear means more willingness to give up protective rights. It means more compliance with the Pinkertons. Can we instead fight for room to breathe once more? Can we find a way to be free from oppression and stop the surveillance coming from the metaphorical Pinkerton's watchful eye. And by the way, their logo is a watchful eye. Yes, we can. Can we be outlaws yet not criminals, being those who refuse to accept the abuse of authority and the breaking of laws by authorities. Yes. Our land is vast and our voices are strong. 
there is still enough room for freedom to open up before us. But we have to see the value of such an openness and the reality of our restraints. We have to say no to the continued funding of the Pinkertons. And I wanted to do an update on the case regarding the obtaining of documents, um, obtaining Carl L. Harp's FBI file through a Freedom of Information Act request that was put off by the FBI through continual delays until I finally filed a FOIA lawsuit, Freedom of Information Act lawsuit, um, pro se in federal court in late fall 2015. And a few weeks ago, the FBI's attorney contacted me and desired to settle that case. And so I sought counsel, and I was lucky enough to get two wonderful attorneys, um, one from Washington, D.C., Mark Zaid, who's a well-known attorney and who does, has done a lot of battles in the FOIA world, and um, another one, uh, Brendan Donkers, who is a Seattle attorney, and they're working together as co-counsel on the case and um, have been supportive, are doing the work pro bono. And last week, they were able to make an agreement with the attorney for the FBI to release 500 pages of documents each month, which is more aligned with the law. And they also um, were able to work the agreement so that I would be able to see the documents and make sure that all the information was intact, that it was legible, because what often happens is the FBI will tend to redact almost every word on the page. So they may give you pages, but they may have some, nothing on them. So um, they have worked it out so that we can challenge what they've released if we need to and move on from there. So this is a first step in uh, being able to get the documents, but it's it's a good outcome and it's a good first step. So, and that's all I have. So, have a good evening. Good night.